This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review. All things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Fifty years ago this month, thousands of Americans marched from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama. The marches highlighted racial injustice in the southern U.S. and helped pass the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Although society has come a long way in half a century, there are still many instances where the voting rights of minorities are jeopardized. We'll hear from historian Molly Ladd-Taylor. Plus, a Toronto nursing home has come under fire for brazenly dipping into the private trust accounts of its residents to pay the bills. Even more shocking is that the provincial government hasn't delivered any discipline over the matter. Judith Wall is the executive director of the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly, and she'll join me in a few minutes. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. More than 52,000 Canadians left the country for medical care in 2014, and that's an increase of 26% over the previous year, this according to a report from the Fraser Institute. The highest number of patients travelled for internal medical procedures like colonoscopies, gastroscopies, and angiographies. The report says that while there's no definite data on why Canadians go elsewhere, it likely comes down to lengthy wait times, concerns about our own medical quality, and lack of available resources. Back in 2013, we told you about the launch of Calico, Google's special biotech division focused on aging and related diseases. Well, the department made headlines again this week when it announced a partnership with the Broad Institute, a joint institution at Harvard University and MIT. Calico said it would help Broad researchers study aging and translate those findings into new therapies. In return, they'll gain access to Broad's genetics and biology expertise and drug discovery tools. Charles Eugster is helping to throw out old-age stereotypes. The 95-year-old has set a new world record for running the 200-meter track sprint. He made it in 55.48 seconds, and that's 2.4 seconds faster than the previous record in the 95-plus age bracket. Eugster is incredibly fit with a very toned physique, but that wasn't always the case. He didn't begin bodybuilding until he was... 87 years old when he noticed that his body was, and I quote, deteriorated. He now calls retirement a health catastrophe and a financial disaster and hopes he can serve as an inspiration to show how someone can achieve anything at any age. The last close relative of Anne Frank, her first cousin, has died in Basel, Switzerland. 
Bernard Buddy Elias dedicated his life to the memory of Holocaust victims, and he was 89 when he passed away. And Frank became famous for a diary she kept while her family was in hiding from the Nazis in Amsterdam when she was 13. She died in the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp in 1945. The son of Anne's aunt, Elias, presided over the Anne Frank Fonds, the foundation which holds the right to her diary, which has been read by millions since it was first published in 1947. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's an extraordinary example of a breach of fiduciary responsibility to some of the most vulnerable people in our society. In 2012, a Toronto nursing home affiliated with the United Church dipped into the private trust accounts of elderly residents to meet its payroll. The Ina Grafton Gage home paid back the $37,000, and there were no legal consequences for this blatant violation of the law. I sat down with Judith Wall, a lawyer and the executive director of the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly. So this was quite a shocking story that a nursing home borrowed cash from the residents' trust accounts to cover payroll, and that this was authorized by a board of directors. Well, it's quite a shock. Like, we... Every kind of community board deals or nonprofit board deals with uh, accounts and people know what trust is. Trust means you can't touch it. And there's explicit legislation that that governs these long-term care homes that tells them they cannot go into the trust accounts. So, yes, when we heard the story, we were quite surprised. So this was the Ina Grafton Gage home. We were surprised that this was not caught by the Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care in that there is a requirement in the legislation for an annual audit of the trust accounts. And the Ministry of Health does go into the homes and does inspections as to whether the homes are meeting the standards of the Long-Term Care Homes Act. And this is a standard. And even if this was before this particular legislation, because the legislation changed in the last couple of years, there was similar provisions in the other legislation, the predecessor. We know at the federal level, there are often problems with inspections because of lack of resources. Uh, Is the same thing true at the province? Does the province just doesn't have enough people to go and check up on all the nursing homes? From what we can see, the Ministry of Health doesn't have people that can do the financial inspections. So, indeed, the Ministry of Health is supposed to inspect the homes on a yearly basis. Under the old legislation, this wasn't always being done. It's it's more rigorous now in the present regime of inspections. However, those inspectors are nurses. They're people who are looking at the standards of care. So the question we have for the Ministry of Health now is, do you have financial people who are looking at these trust accounts and other records, because the records, financial records are part of the inspection, and when they submit them to the Ministry of Health, are, is anybody looking at them? Is there anybody internal to the Ministry of Health looking at them? So we have that question for them. And the answer? We haven't got the answer yet. Now, there didn't seem to be any consequences when the ministry discovered this, and they, of course, had the power to cut back on funding to this nursing home, but they said, well, that would have had a bad impact on the residents. Well, there's other penalties that uh, that the ministry can do. The ministry could have ordered an audit like, and, and, and f- uh, required the audit, like sent in an auditor. Uh, so the ministry has a fair bit of power of, of other alternatives, but they didn't 
ex- they didn't issue an order, and that's the concern we have. When it came to light, there was some outrage in the community, and uh, council attached to the home people demanded that the board resign en masse, and they did, and there's a new board. But I'm thinking, shouldn't there be some kind of pedal? I mean, basically what they did was criminal. Well, that's the question we also have from the Ministry of Health is how are they going to do the checking of the annual audits that they're done, uh, that they look into this as part of the standards, uh, the, the re- requirements for their annual reviews? Uh, what is the ministry going to do? So I hope as a result of this that the ministry is also making this known to all the long-term care homes that this is a requirement reminding them of this and and that this is this what happened here is totally should never happen again. This is a blatant breach of trust. It sounds like from what we've heard the home has stepped up to to respond to that now. But this is the type of thing that should never happen again. Okay? Judith Wall, thanks so much. Thank you. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Fifty years ago this month, thousands of black and white Americans marched from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama. It was a pivotal moment in the civil rights movement and helped bring about the Voting Rights Act. In just a moment, I'll be joined by historian Molly Ladd-Taylor. Are you ready to march with us? It was a watershed event that many Zoomers remember clearly. This weekend marks the 50th anniversary of the historic Selma to Montgomery, Alabama march. The event is widely credited with bringing the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which stopped the disenfranchisement of tens of thousands of African-American voters. Martin Luther King and his supporters had started the march twice before, but were turned back by violent state troopers. They set out a third time on March 21, 1965, protected by U.S. Army troops and Alabama National Guard. I reached historian Molly Ladd-Taylor for her take. There were actually three marches or three attempts of marches from Selma to Montgomery, The one we're most familiar with uh, was the first one, uh, which resulted in Bloody Sunday and is the subject of the recent film by Ava DuVernay. And uh, that was obviously a very momentous, uh, horrible experience, and that's the one that was just uh, commemorated in Selma with President Obama. The second march was also in the film where uh, King started the march, and there was a federal uh, injunction, so they couldn't march across the bridge and uh, to Montgomery. And uh, King and his organization, uh, SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, were afraid that there would be another bloodbath, uh, so they turned back. And it was only on the third march, beginning March 21st, that they marched from Selma to Montgomery with federal protection. And that's the march that was also incredibly important turning point because they had federal protection for the first time and walked through Lowndes County, for example, where uh, a county that was primarily African-American with not one black person registered to vote in that county. 
I think that for many Zoomers, uh, they remember this, but it almost seems like a, a different world. Well, it's a different world um, in Alabama, and it's hard for us to imagine what it would be like in uh, racially segregated Alabama, because even most uh, Zoomers who uh, grew up in the United States or even have the dimmest memories, they didn't have the experience of growing up in the segregated South, uh, because growing up in uh, Detroit or New York or Boston or California, as vivid as racism was, uh, was not like the Deep South, uh, where uh, segregation, voter suppression were the law. Fifty years on, I have to say, I mean, one would have thought that these issues were resolved, but they are very far from being resolved. They're very far, as we have recently seen with uh, the protests and the horrible instances that fortunately are getting publicity. We have to remember that when we see the horrible instance of uh, the death of Michael Brown and the attention to police brutality, that this does happen more often. There's so much that is calling our attention now to continuing discrimination and violence uh, against much of the black community. Especially important is uh, the recent repeal, essentially, of the Voting Rights Act, uh, a Supreme Court decision of uh, 2013 Shelby versus Holder invalidated a section of the Voting Rights Act that was an important section that required lawmakers in states that had a history of discrimination, mostly in the Deep South, to get federal permission before they changed their voting rules. I, I was just getting to that. I, I mean, in, in the most recent elections in the United States, there are a, a very large number of instances where states attempted to roll back voters' rights by putting in extra restrictions, either for federal ID or, or poll taxes. Uh, and I guess uh, the law you're referring to sort of cleared the way for that. Uh, well, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 put the, the might of the federal government behind uh, the voting rights of African Americans. And what's happened with uh, the Supreme Court now uh, did so on the basis that our country has changed and that blanket federal protection is no longer needed. It's difficult for us to remember in Canada, in the United States, the administration of voting is a state responsibility, and that's one thing that has made this chaos and the voter ID laws and so on such mm -hmm. a problem. The way in which uh, some of these states that, uh, you know, w where Republicans basically are worried about getting reelected tried to challenge voting, it, it has to do with ID. Uh, what are the other kinds of things they use to try to restrict voting? Well, the voter ID laws are one of the most common. Uh, another thing that is really odd is uh, voter caging, where they send out mass mailings, uh, and then if they return, saying no sender, then they use that to get rid of the person, to take the person off the voter rolls. Now, remember, there you have to register to vote, uh, so to have a, a voter ID or to, uh, and it takes some time. You can't just register on the day of the vote like you can uh, in Canada. Almost six million American citizens are currently denied the right to vote uh, due to uh, criminal conviction of a felony. And in the context of especially the war on drugs, which disproportionately uh, resulted in the uh, arrest, conviction, incarceration of African-Americans, 
has serious racial uh, inequalities built into that disfranchisement. In the United States, the fact that the black vote is overwhelmingly Democrat makes this a partisan political issue. Do you think uh, they need another Selma to Montgomery march? Well, they just had a pretty powerful uh, a moment of that of that uh, a march to celebrate it, and uh, you know it is a bit. It's very complicated because you look at that march, and then it is a bit of a feel good thing, isn't that? We have a, a African American president in the United States, and we have that video image of John Lewis being uh, beaten up, his uh, skull fractured, and now he's a congressman. Uh, so on, in the one hand, it kind of makes us feel good. What we need to remember is that that first bloody Sunday and all those efforts and the, the deaths of individuals, some white, mostly black, uh, who go, gave their lives for voting rights, it, that's what we need to do. We need to restore the demand uh, and the rights for people to vote, because so many young people and old people, too, think that voting is a pointless exercise. But we need to remember uh, it's a responsibility to vote. How many people gave their lives, uh, put their lives on the line uh, in order for uh, all of us, not only African uh, people of African descent, but all uh, people to really have a stake and uh, to recognize their responsibility to vote. Well, I think that's probably a good note to wrap things up on, but also a reminder that actually our demographic, Zoomers, we vote. Right. And what we can do is encourage other people to vote and make it as easy as possible for them to do so. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Molly Ladd-Taylor is a professor of history at York University. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. We'll take a quick break and then return with music from an artist who is an Alabama native and had his own place in the civil rights movement, Wilson Pickett. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's time for your international arts date book tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. In New York City, Britain's Royal Shakespeare Company has arrived on Broadway with productions of Hilary Mantel's books, Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies. The king called me this morning. What did he want? A son. He's got one. Young Richmond. And they say Mary Boleyn's boys is as well. It might be. It's squalls and it's ginger. <laughs> but forget Mary Boleyn. He needs a son born in wedlock. Wolf Hall parts one and two are in previews at the classic Winter Garden Theater. To Paris, France, and the Musée d'Orsay for the exhibit Pierre Bonnard, painting Arcadia. Picasso detested Bonnard's work and regarded him as a lightweight. But the 147 pieces in this show bring new attention to his vivid colors and subtle compositions. The exhibit is on till July. And in Milan, see the work of Medardo Rosso, one of the most influential sculptors of the 19th and 20th centuries. The exhibit is called The Light and the Material and is at Milan's Gallery of Modern Art until the end of May. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Datebook. This week, the great Wilson Pickett would have celebrated his 74th birthday. Pickett was born on March 18th in Prattville, Alabama. He grew up singing in Baptist church choirs and developed a passionate, forceful vocal style. 
In the mid to late 50s, he sang with a gospel group named the Violinaires. By 1960, he'd left the group to pursue his solo career. He signed with Atlantic Records, and after releasing a few songs that failed to chart, he recorded his breakout hit, In the Midnight Hour. It was the first of many hit singles that also include Mustang Sally, Funky Broadway, and this one, recorded in 1966 at Fame Studios in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Here is Land of a Thousand Dances. One, two, three. That was Wilson Pickett with Land of a Thousand Dances. Pickett was born on March 18, 1941. Sadly, he passed away in 2006. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Weekend Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Snymer. Produced by Paul Thomas. Program Director, John Vandriel. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. Home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.